You're listening to Working File, a podcast about design practice and its relationship to the world. My name is Andy Mangold. And I'm Matt McInerney. On this episode, we discuss criticism in professional contexts. And how your heart breaks when someone questions the only thing you know to be true. We should check in on Andy, by the way. So, welcome to Working File. This is another episode of the panel show about design. So, we are joined, as always, by two wonderful guests. Uh, our first guest is joining me right here in Baltimore, uh, in in the studio. I, I say studio, but it took us twenty minutes to get the stupid audio working. So, maybe <laughs> that studio. Make not a studio. It makes you a bad engineer. Okay, sure. So, it's a room tot- with microphones. It's a so. fine studio, and I'm a bad engineer. Uh, <laughs> uh, Victoria Russian is here with me. She is a type designer for Font Bureau and a freelance letterer. Victoria. Welcome to the hot room where I don't know how to work the microphones. Hi, it's it's been great so far. Um, I was <laughs> I was so nervous about screwing up my first ever podcast recording that I watched an episode of Orange Is the New Black right before I came here. Um, you know, get pumped up. Yep. <laughs> I don't. Little did you know, I was the one that would screw it all up by not being able to work the microphones. So. Well, I mean, I don't know why I thought that that show would work, but. Well, great. Here we are. Uh, this will probably not resemble Orange is the New Black too much, but... We can only hope. Uh, I hope nobody gets shanked. Does that happen in that show? It seems no, like a No, you know nothing. Show. Okay, I don't. You've I trapped us it. here for at least 15 minutes, so it feels a little bit like prison, but hopefully it'll be fun after this. All right. And also joining us on the line uh, is Annie Wong. Annie told me to introduce her as a Dementor, so I guess I'm going to go ahead and introduce her as a Dementor. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Annie, how are things? Uh, doing great. I'm enjoying this Oakland weather. I was just in Palm Springs... This past weekend, um, with a high of 110 degrees, so I'm really glad to be back in the Bay Area where there is absolutely no temperature. Very exciting. So this this, po- this episode is going to be about criticism, uh, which is, is a broad topic. I think we'll probably come back to it in the future in other episodes. Um, and then the place I want to start is just kind of asking the question of what is the role of criticism in actual design practice? I think oftentimes we think of of criticism either in the public sphere, in the sense of people writing about design, writing about, you know, their criticism of something, or we think about it, honestly, in like an educational sense, I think about it in the classroom as a sort of learning tool. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering lately, if anything we do in like actual formal design practice resembles criticism at all, uh, and what that kind of looks like. Recently, so I work at a small um, product agency, and we haven't had any sort of formal process as to how we critique each other's work. And um, our team is really small, so it can it can easily have like projects can easily like get out the door without everyone having seen it or even having like a kind of some like a peer look at it. So, I mean, we've been trying to establish a little bit more of a formal critique process. That way everyone can look at that stuff because I think it is really easy because we're working so quickly to not have other eyes on it. I mean, like I really, I think it's a great to have criticism from peers. So it's not always so uh, kind of like top down criticism. And also it's just kind of like a little bit less pressure, right? Instead of like going to the creative director or someone who's in a yeah. position of authority to be like, oh, can you look at this? Because then at that point, it becomes, it feels like it can easily become more of a mandate and less of a, um, like, suggestion or feedback. That's the place I've found myself recently is uh, trying to figure out criticism when everybody feels like a peer. Like, m- more recently, I'm working in a digital agency where kind of there's not a whole lot of hierarchy, whereas previously I was working at 
relatively large design agency where there were like partners in charge of everything and you'd have to kind of critique from them meant like you absolutely have to do this whereas now it's like well i want to critique this in a friendly way i want to receive critique and decide to pay attention to some things and not others and uh it's a very different thing to navigate than when it just feels like i mean to be honest it's a little bit easier when you get critique from somebody above you and you just have to say oh okay well i guess i'll just do that then because i have no choice do you, yeah, do you call that critique or do you call that, I don't know, like you said, a mandate? I don't know. I mean, that's kind of what it was in school from like uh, from a professor. I guess it was a little bit different with peers, but because there was more structure to it, it felt like it felt a little bit more like you had to pay attention. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, that like my first experience in in designing for somebody else felt more like school than it does now where it's a little flatter. Mm hmm. Victoria, your workspace, I think, is more different than perhaps the three of ours. What what does criticism uh, look like at a place like Font Bureau? Like, how, how does that work? I mean, okay, so a couple different things. So I work in a couple different areas, even though they're only in typeface design. It's um, I'm working for uh, whoever is releasing a typeface through us that I need to fill out their character sets for retail, or I'm working for occasionally for clients, or I'm doing my own um stuff so when it at the stage that i'm at right now the work is so technical that if one of my superiors tells me that i need to change something i i really do because i've messed it up and it's not how you know the um it's just not how good practice goes mm-hmm. um so it's still very much like a learning kind of situation where you're like you're you're picking up a technical craft and so right for me right now and i and i've been working at this job for two and a half years and it's still picking all of that up and um i tend to like i think that i'm really thorough with a lot of everything (laughs) but then someone else will check it and no so (laughs) i thought this was an opinion but this is a fact type designers type designers are notoriously thorough people from my experience so i think you're you think you're running in a very uh a very particular crowd it's just like what there, there was a thing that i'm doing that i was doing last week where i had to like add um upwards of 100 new characters to a typeface that has been out for a really long time um and it was it's just like a pdf of a grid of characters and it's like add all of these and i'm like okay and then my coworker's like well you missed like 15 i was like oh my god you're right um <laughs> well i guess that does seem a little more black and white yeah but it's so much and it's i i don't know maybe it was like closer to 200 things that i had to add um but so yeah, there's not really there's not really a lot of gray area for for where sure. I'm getting this wrong. At least in that part of my job, it's yeah. the client needs this thing, and it's and mm-hmm. I think that's part of what has been making me kind of roll this over in my head is that the things we have that maybe resemble critique in the design practice world seem to me to come from very different places than mm-hmm. critique normally comes from. Right, we're talking about critique from perhaps a superior, which may instead be an instruction or a mandate instead of actual like kind of here's what I think, but I'm, I'm curious to know what you think as well, kind of conversation. Um, you may have critique from peers, but in the presence of a mandate, critique from peers very often just becomes a different opinion that doesn't matter as much. Uh, and I think it's interesting that the Stupid sort of peers. client... Yeah. So, and then the client aspect is interesting too, because uh, clients hire us because we have some sort of expertise, right, that they don't have. So they need us to perform some kind of service for them. Uh, and yet, oftentimes, I think designers treat feedback or criticism from clients also as a mandate which is an interesting place to kind of find yourself Mm -hmm. and all these things are very different from like what i think of as like the canonical criticism which i still go back to like 
a classroom uh, in college, a bunch of people that are basically like the purpose of critique in that context is just let's get better. Uh, yeah. Let's try and make the best possible work. Uh, and it strikes me that we don't really have that context in most practical design jobs from what I've from what I can tell, at least from the small slice of the world I've seen. Yeah. And I think sometimes like I feel like when we are at school and we are getting feedback, it is kind of like uh, it's whether to make our ideas stronger or whether to make our uh, our work uh, just formally better um, in one direction or another or however you want to go. But I think when we do uh, work, start working and like having critiques in the professional sense, it does become very hairy because then we have like internal stakeholders and then we have external stakeholders. And I always feel like sometimes people, different people have different triggers, you know, like some things Mm -hmm. like some people might react more aggressively to, or have a bad or like kind of hang on to as their one piece of design that they are going to be more interested in critiquing. So a lot of it is just like, it's like this weird dance of like doing the best work you can, but also cons- having to consider a lot of different variables and trying to figure out like what type of feedback is going to make this design better or what kind of feedback is going to position this idea better. So it does become kind of crazy in that way. So, so Annie, you mentioned that you started recently at, the, at your sort of workplace trying to have more peer-to-peer critiques um, what does that actually practically look like? Does it does it resemble something that you might have experienced in in school when you were studying design, or is it different? Like, how does that actually go practically? I was trying to. Um, for me, I think it helped me to ha- have to establish a little bit more of a formal kind of like uh, academic process where I would book like half an hour um, in the conference room and just throw work up and um, uh, have some sort of objectives for that half hour session just be like these are the things that I'm working on these are the things that I need help on um everyone kind of look this over talk about what you like um what you wish were different and what you wonder and I know this is kind of I think this is like an ideal kind of framework of like I like I wish I wonder um Mm -hmm. just to see what kind of result I could yield from that type of feedback and then as far as maybe more intimate feedback I usually just grab um, a designer that I'm working next to and just be like, Hey, can you just take a look at this? I'd want to see like what you think of it or what isn't working. And then, you know, after that, then we kind of do the whole like, um, like client dance too. And that becomes kind of interesting because sometimes then that gets like packaged up into a presentation. And from there, there's a lot of like playing telephone sometimes where, and I don't know if you guys have noticed this too, or if you've experienced this, but like sometimes we'll be in like client meetings presenting work. And then I think sometimes the clients won't be comfortable like talking about it within that meeting. So they'll like take notes course, and yeah. then um, get passed to like an exact account executive. And then from there, we kind of play that game of telephone of like, okay, so what feedback is actually like, what is uh, actionable feedback and what is feedback that's a little bit more not within our peer view to change. That's like more, you know, maybe this is like a bigger strategy problem, not so much a like a design, uh, yeah, design problem. I, I love when the client walks out of the meeting and you know it was one of those meetings where everyone was like, "Oh, we love this, we love that. Yeah. It's also great." <laughs> and you know that okay, well, they walked out, everything was perfect. So we'll wait the email that'll come two days later with the things that they actually think yeah. they didn't feel like they wanted to say because they're not used to being in a critical <laughs> space. Which is it's very reasonable to me for somebody that totally hasn't practiced 
you know, speaking critically about something to like feel you know, it's the same thing that people feel in like their GD one classes. Like you don't want to mm-hmm. hurt feelings. You feel like everything's personal. And well, but yeah, in your GD one classes, you're not having you're not like making the work for someone else. Like if yeah. someone it, people could be very critical of the work that's up there, but you didn't make it for them. You were just whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a power yeah. differential there. And it's also gets me to something which I wanted to bring up, which is that the only thing that we do here at Friends of the Web, and, and we have a small design team here, is only a few people, um, things that resemble critique or like you could call criticism don't feel like criticism because it's just the three of us or four of us collectively working to try and like figure it out. Like it feels more like teamwork than criticism. Um, and I think that's because one of the big differences between, like Victoria said, being in a classroom and being in the real world is that uh, obviously in the real world, you have someone you're doing the work for which sounds like it might be sort of a, a novel or like simple difference. But in reality, like in, in a classroom, the hardest, you, you've you answered the hardest problems, right? Like the hardest thing is figuring out what to do, not like how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so if you come into a classroom and you're like, I made a branding system for an ice cream truck that sells crazy ice cream flavors. And if we accept that, if we accept that sort of pretense, <laughs> then sure, we can say, okay, great. Well, your use of neon green here is very effective because X and, you know, it, off we go on a sort of a technical critique. But in the real world, it is never that cut and dry. Mm-hmm. You always spend your your entire time figuring out, like, is this an ice cream truck that sells novelty ice cream flavors? Or what is this? Like, what are the actual goals of what we're trying to accomplish? And that stuff, like, it, I feel like the design process is constantly trying to figure out those things instead of just formally trying to represent them. Because that part is almost easy relative to figuring out what it is you're actually supposed to be doing. I mean, supposedly a client would have already figured that out, but like, then who knows? Supposedly, exactly. Uh, that's that's the thing is, I think uh, people people don't think in the same terms, right? Like, a client will come to you because they need something. They're like, oh yes, I need to have a logo, or I need mm-hmm. to have a website, or I need to have a poster to hang up in this sort of space, and they don't think about that in terms of what that thing is actually doing very often. Totally. And so, and I think a lot of it is kind of like when a client does come with kind of a very specific list of things that they want, it's also because that's maybe like maybe they don't really know what it is, but those are kind of the only tangible material things that they understand that we can do because a lot yeah. of, the, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like design is, it's really hard to know, you know, like, oh, I just need, I really do just need a logo or do I need like a, you know more specific like positioning statement or a value proposition for my business and then but i just think i need a logo so it becomes a lot of it is just like let's ask as many questions as possible yeah i I always say that uh for us (laughs) i always talk about how our design process is more like a conversation than it is about like making an artifact uh we do mostly websites and iphone apps so uh if you think about it technically like we are making a drawing of a website and then we throw it in the garbage and then we actually make it for real, right? Like there's basically no things we actually use from that file, like practically. <laughs> it's just there for our shared understanding of this is what we're supposed to be making. Um, so I, I, I try to talk about how design is just a conversation. Like all we're doing is putting something in front of somebody else so they can actually tell us what's wrong with it because mm-hmm. we won't be able to do that with words. Trying to do it with words is, is, is not going to work because it's too hard to imagine things. So instead, we're just going to make it and then see what's wrong with it because having that conversation is the important part, not the pushing around of shapes and colors on a canvas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think what's also really, uh, like, this is kind of new for me too. It's like I've, my background is mostly in like art direction, advertising, print stuff. And then I started moving more towards a product design role. And then we we all also have like an added layer of like user research too and like focus groups. And so 
that becomes really interesting too to figure out like, oh, we thought that this was the best solution, but we like put it in front of users and we realized that like they couldn't find this button at all or like this mm-hmm. isn't what we needed them to do. And is it because it's poorly designed? Is the UI pattern not like not aligned with what they need to do? So that becomes kind of interesting too to try to figure out and decipher like, well, what ha- like what fell apart here? And then adding that to a to the list of like feedback coming from all different angles and trying to to make sense of it. So that's kind of interesting. Like I found it pretty interesting because before I used to think like, Oh, if like the users, if this is what is happening during all our user research, then, you know, do we take that with a grain of salt? You know, we should, but at the same time, like if consistently something fails, like maybe that's just a failure. Yeah. That's just not working. I think that's one of the big (laughs) challenges of like, the role of criticism in a practical design practice is that there are so many other competing forces, right? Like, okay, we were critical of this thing. We could do it better if we did X, but it's out of the budget. Or we're critical of this thing. We worked really hard to try and figure out how to make it great, but it just practically doesn't work, right? The goals are just to get more people to click this button and less people click the button. So you can write a whole dissertation about why this thing is better, but if it's not the goal of the project, mm-hmm. like, you know, what what are you doing? Like, how can you actually justify like a critical pursuit of good design or critical pursuit of, you know, technically competent, whatever, if it's not actually meeting the goals that you kind of set forth for yourself. Is there like always one solution, one perfect solution to this that's like off in the horizon or are we just all, you know, struggling and somewhere in the middle ground and there, and there is no, I don't know. <laughs> I, I always, I used to think there was one solution uh until i started actually doing work and now I, when i, I was a boy all... i used to dream of there <laughs> being think, one solution i just don't think that at all anymore i i think we're all yeah there are too many humans mm-hmm. involved for there to be a right answer like there are too many subjective opinions to to say that uh i don't know even even when we use data and like we we test our assumptions it's never totally clear it's not like we get an answer back and be like oh well it's so it's so clear like the, the variables are never um, isolated enough that there's a clear picture that gives you a right answer. So even when you use data, I can't always come to a conclusion that's just obvious. Right. <laughs> so, so there's just better and worse. A little bit, yeah. Right. A little bit. Uh, like I don't. I don't think you can even cleanly like test the color of a button and really, <laughs> no. really. Well, know, I mean, you know, we don't know what color this button is. I think oftentimes you can learn like a rule of thumb, but if you understand a rule of thumb, that's not actually real understanding, right? Like. You could like observe the world and say, "Oh, look, the sun comes up every day." So I bet you twenty dollars, sun comes up tomorrow. And if you don't understand that, because we're in a solar system and we're on a you know sphere and this thing is spinning around this other thing, then you actually don't understand the sun any better. You just you just you know followed the trail of crumbs, and you know here you are predicting the sun's going to come up tomorrow. Uh, so I, I, that's a silly I mean, the metaphor. Tra- <laughs> the trail of crumbs is like legit. <laughs> I mean, when, in absence of nothing else, yeah, I think yeah. I, I think that's a reasonable thing to do. But I, I, a pet peeve of mine is when uh, people that have observed something like that, which is, I think, a fair criticism of like most uh, A/B testing and like you mm-hmm. know quantified measuring. They try to purport to understand something, right? Like they'll say, "Oh, customers like this one more." It's like, no, 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 don't say customers like this one more. Mm-hmm. Say the thing that actually happened, which is that. <laughs> uh, well, uh, between this test of this group of people, there was a 0.25% variance in people that clicked this button when this thing was near it. That's not people like this more. That's not this sells better. That's just uh, you have to look at it in its actual kind of specific role. Uh, but anyway, so like it, all of these kind of competing factors, right? We have 
uh, A-B testing metrics and like actually being able to measure the success of something in some, in certain circumstances of a design. We have the whims of clients and perhaps superiors, uh, your bosses, your creative directors, uh, you know, whatever. Um, we have the whims of your, your clients, right? If you're working mm-hmm. directly with a client, if you're a freelancer, if you get to work with your client through a studio, uh, you have their sort of whims. All these things are kind of competing for um, like influence on the direction of something. And my question is just what we think of as criticism, like let's as like-minded people get together and try and work this out and sort of suss out the version of this that we agree is going to be the best by however we choose to measure best in our certain different contexts. Uh, Where does that fit into this world? Is it like those things come first and once the client's happy and once we're doing enough of the things that are close to what we've quantified and measured are correct, then we get to actually figure out what's good or do we get to try and figure out ourselves first and then we test things and use that information to kind of bring back into our sort of critique world? Like how do do these things play together? So I think, well, actually, I, I I have one other question before we hop into that. How often is everyone here like working on a team that has full context of the problem that they're trying to solve? And how often do you have team members who are part of maybe a critique or some sort of criticism process where they don't have the context and they provide, uh, you know, kind of fresh eyes on the project? Some of some of one, some of the other, I guess. Uh, we oftentimes we, we don't have any projects here that everyone is working on ever. That's, that hasn't happened in forever. So it's just if if we need an outsider perspective, like hey, we need a sanity check on this. Does this actually make sense? Because uh, we're taking some things for granted. Uh, we oftentimes turn to those people for that, but mostly it's the people that are working on the project that are kind of close to it that do most of the you know feedback, I guess, at least here. Mm-hmm. That's pretty similar here too. Like I think I really I I struggle to get fresh eyes on it. I just get I'd like turn into tunnel vision where I'm just like, I'm just going to look at this for like eight hours and maybe bring someone in. But it's, it depends on, you know, like the deadline or whatever. But yeah, I always have to remember to like bring someone in that hasn't seen something because then they'll, their reaction to it might be totally different because they're not like kind of in that world all the time. Do you have the idea of like outsider criticism in type design uh, or lettering? Like, do you ever value like some, normie that goes that doesn't look like an f like does, does that no is that something you take to heart or you're like no that's the actual construction of an f that i'm very familiar with that is legitimate and if you don't think it looks like an f you're just not you don't get it i mean that sounds so douchey to say but like <laughs> <laughs> um it's hard to say without sounding at least a little dismissive but right i think that's a reality for most people in most industries right, right like, exactly well i mean I, f- I feel like i've gotten like past the stage now where i'm like drawing s's that look like f's but um that used to be just the criticism that I would get in like in class in school where people just didn't know what else to say, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they lacking something else, just go, that looks like this. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> uh, but like you, you clearly get from the context what that says. No. Okay. Okay. Um, that was also my fault for not like knowing how to draw an F, but, um, maybe a yeah. better example is like, and this will kind of transition us into the other question I asked earlier. If you're working with a client, either freelance when you're lettering or through uh, Font Bureau working on a typeface, um, are, is the goal of most of those projects like, okay, so such and such client hired us and their goal is that they want to like this thing. Uh, if if that's the goal, like, and this, is, this happens to us sometimes at work too. We have a project where it's like, uh, you know, maybe we're working for a nonprofit that is trying to, you know, uh, work on their branding or something. Maybe we're working for some company that 
um, doesn't have like clear business goals, which we also work with some universities too. So there the goals are kind of like hazier. It's not like we need to make this much money or we fail. In those situations, oftentimes our like actual goal is just this person has to feel like this is a representation of them. They have to like like it. And, and if they like it, then it's success. If they don't, then it's not. Um, in those scenarios, how much will you like fight for what you know to be technically correct? Things that in a criticism with other type designers, they would say, oh, this needs to be cleaned up. This needs to be that. Uh, when somebody just says, oh, but I don't, I don't like that. Like, how do you weigh your technical understanding of how to do your job with feedback that might be contrary to that from somebody else? And it's- the goals of a project. Yeah, it's definitely such a balance. And I don't claim to have, you know, as much experience in this, you know, negotiating that as many of my colleagues do. Um, but it's just like, what can I put out that I feel like doesn't make that, this is going to sound so flowery and dumb. Um, it's like, what can I make that like doesn't make the world so much uglier? Um <laughs> And no, that's a, I know that's a real thing. Though. I, I feel that. Well, Same. Yeah, I know like, it's, just, it's, it's just well, my my job doesn't have like there's like very little conceptual aspect that which I love. Um, it's just <laughs> it's just me trying to make shapes that make sense and that are clear and that are doing what they have to do. So, which is a pretty I, big job. Like communicate the whole of language is is a pretty big charge. Well, yeah, I know, but like I'm not writing the words. I'm not like this is just just like me and some conventions and trying to like make them new and interesting. And um yeah, it's just when the client is really fighting for something that I don't think makes sense or that I don't think is clear. It's like you you have to try to tell them as best you can why you don't think that that works. Um, and sometimes that works, and sometimes at the end of the day, you have to do what they say. And then you made, you know, a thing where, like, an A is current way too tight to a T, and, and you have to go home and try to sleep. Yeah, I, my world is small, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's something that... Um, Did that answer your question? I think so. Uh, I mean, so uh, we have a similar thing that happens for us at work. And I think I've, I've observed students that are either working at an internship or when I was in school, I remember people kind of having this jaded perspective that they were trying to do good work and that the world was preventing them. And, you know, this is like the typical like clients from hell, you know, kind yeah. of attitude Ew. where it's like, uh, you know, I'm out here doing my thing. I know what I'm supposed to be doing and these people won't let me do it because they are, don't understand or... You know, something's broken. Um, and I've, I'm sensitive to that because I think the vast majority of the time in those situations, it's just that somebody is a little bit too inside their own industry and inside their own head, right? Like if we're doing a project uh, where like the goal is to represent somebody and what they feel like represents them is something that I don't think is as technically proficient or don't think is as good, I'll explain why, especially if I think that it's something that is going to later bother them, but they don't see now because they're kind of too excited about something. Um, and I'll still try and sort of make that fight. But I, I feel like I've gotten better at just being like, well, who's going to actually care about this? Is it everyone? Is it people that uh, are going to think about it? Or is it just maybe other graphic designers or the people that are just kind of in my little chunk of the world? Um, and I take that with a grain of salt because I think sometimes the case is just that I'm playing insider baseball and I just I, I just know my industry too well and that I'm focused on things that are not actually relevant to the bigger world. But sometimes I think it's really our job to stand up for those things that actually do matter, that we are the only ones that notice. And that's kind of the beauty of it, right? That we're kind of shepherds of this culture, this visual language. 
Uh, and I don't know where that line is, but I, I feel it sometimes in different projects where like I can be like, oh, this is one where I need to just give it up because it doesn't actually matter that much. And I feel projects where I'm like, oh, this one actually matters a lot and I'm going to kind of fight for it. And I don't know what the difference is yet. I mean, I the I always feel the difference in that if it's something I just like better, but, you know, I can acknowledge that like, okay, they like this. They like this other thing better. It doesn't make it objectively worse. It's just different mm-hmm. than what I would pick. That doesn't crush me. Mm-hmm. But like. If if somebody if I lose the battle over something that I feel like is as close to an objective rule as I know, like that'll that really stings. That really burns me because that's all I have. That's all I have is objective rules. <laughs> like this is as close as I can be to an expert, and I'm pretty sure you hired me because of my expertise. And if if I can't win on that one, then I like I feel like I don't like I I don't have value anymore. And also like what are you paying for? Like we're both losing this battle, so that that is the most mm-hmm. painful to me. Is just like, oh, as close as we can come to design being a science, and you're denying the science. I'm gonna kill myself. I don't know what to do. We can, we can, we can <laughs> well, not worry Matt, about no. opinions. Well, but... <laughs> come well and not to put you on the spot, Matt. Well, actually, yes, to put you on the spot. Yeah. Can you think of a scenario that meets those that criteria for you? Because I, I know you are reticent to admit that anything is objective. Uh, I am uh, on, on rare occasions. So, what are the situations where, like, look, I actually know better here? Can you think of an example? Yeah, I can think of like let's say, just putting too much stuff on a page, just like pure clutter, and I just know that no one will be able to read this, no one will take it in, and by putting so much on this page, you're going to get no return on it. Nobody's going to see it. It's just going to be a mess. Uh, that's one where I feel really clearly like. I know you want to have everything here and everything feels important, but I can promise you that by doing this, no one's going to pay attention. Right. Because then at the end of the day, it's like nothing is important when everything's important. Yeah, exactly. So in that situation, I almost feel like this happens to me a lot uh, in, in my job is I feel like it's just my goal to help people understand something that I understand, right? Yeah. That, that's mm-hmm. a perfect example, Matt. I have this conversation with potential clients all the time where I'm like, look, uh, here's the deal. Every time you add something, it diminishes everything else. Just like tattoo that on something <laughs> so you can look at it all the time and never forget that because it always feels like adding things is good because more is better and adding is a good thing. Uh, and it's you don't feel viscerally. Most people don't feel viscerally the fact that that diminishes everything else that was already there. Uh, we write this in emails. We send this to, we talk about it in meetings. It's like a core thing. And usually, almost all the time, I'm able to actually get someone else to understand this. Like, oh, yeah, that does make sense. You know. And, and sort of understand that. So in that sense, like my job as a designer is really just to communicate this idea to somebody else so that they will start to understand why something they might have previously thought was not good is now actually good at solving their problem. Yeah. Which like it's it's a weird situation because in if, if that's the direction of the power dynamic, right? Like if I'm going into that relationship saying it's my job to explain to you why the thing that I did is better than something else... Uh, it's really hard, I think, to draw the line somewhere before you find yourself just trying to justify the things you actually like. Uh, and, and Matt, I, I don't trust myself uh, as much as you and I talk about it. I don't trust myself to know what are the things that are just my taste and what are the things that are actually good outside of my own like worldview. Yeah, I think that's like really kind of like for me, at least it's a little bit comforting to hear because I feel like when I was at school, I had a, like a really clear cut idea of what was good design and what was bad design. But I think the further I am outside of school, it's like I have a good idea of what good design is, but I, I'm starting to feel like, I don't know, anything really, like does anything really <laughs> matter? <laughs> like, <laughs> 
You know, it, like, we, it becomes more of a gray area, too. Yeah. I'm like, this is good design. This is good design. I don't know. Like, what's spectacular design? Like, there's so much well, out I, there, too. And I feel like once you do, once you are looking at kind of, like, professional work, it's like, man, there's, I don't know the conversations behind, you know, this redesign, right? Like, exactly. I could critique it formally, but I can't possibly understand what was the decision that was made to make this happen and like how many people were involved for me to make a clear cut judgment call. Like for me, I think that's kind of like, I like writing the fan fiction about it. Like, I think that's like, my <laughs> idea of design criticism. <laughs> for me, it's like, why, why did Uber need to get rebranded? Let's talk about this. What's the fan fiction behind this? Cause they wanted to like criticism as fan fiction is beautiful. That's I'm, a, nice, I'm that's adopt that. a nice way to acknowledge the reality of the situation. Like, I, it's fun to do that. I'm I'm glad it's fan fiction and not criticism. <laughs> that is exactly what it is. It's totally true. And to like go back to Matt's example, um, we actually had a project very recently, Matt, where I found myself trying to hammer home this idea of like this is just too much. And in this particular scenario, it wasn't just on like a page. It was that the content we were given for something mm-hmm. was just too many words to say not enough stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I kept kind of pushing and editing and trying to get them to recognize that they didn't have to repeat everything seven times and you know, going over this kind of back and forth, which I'm sure we're all familiar with. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, at the end of the day, like it, it came, I came to realize, because someone told me, that part of the reason it was so hard for me to kind of fight this battle is that this content was written by this person who was like, a uh, close friend of the organization I was working with and it was uh, written in a way that like it, the, the, the content was special it was special for a reason that was not it's sort of communicated it's communicative properties uh, it was special for the organization the instance in which it was being used was largely for internal purposes uh, it wasn't really like a big broadcast marketing thing so it wasn't like a huge audience for it mm-hmm. and so ultimately it was just like oh this is just important because so and so wrote it and so-and-so writing something is meaningful. And if we edit it down, then it's not so-and-so's voice anymore. And it's mm-hmm. not really the same thing. And so in that situation, I had to be like, okay, yeah, everything in my whole body tells me that people aren't going to read this because it's kind of stretched out much too thin. Uh, but here's this other reason for why this actually is important to you in this particular context. And I have to just accept that, okay, that's just... That goal was bigger than the formal criticism in this particular scenario. But you weren't told that? like. No, people don't tell you these things. Like They were like, here's the content for the thing. And we went back and forth about it for three weeks. And then finally it was like, well, we can't really edit that out because so-and-so wrote it and it's special. And I'm like, okay, you could have led with, here's our special content. Yeah, well, so-and-so. I think it's funny because it's like it's, you excavate those, those values, right? Like It takes a while for you to, you to realize like what actually is important to a client too. Like I was reading this. Yeah. There's this book. What was it called? Like articulating design decisions or something from Amazon. And there was this one thing um, the author was talking about how like sometimes the clients will have even individual goals that might not always align with larger purpose, like larger business goals too. So then like, that's another thing that you have to like, I have to be cognizant. Like, is this project for this client, this specific person, like, is this going to level them up within the company too? So that's Mm. like another area it's another list of Mm -hmm. like things to be to to know and kind of not be wary of but understand like oh maybe they need this to be successful or there's like high pressure for this to happen because this will lead them to get a better job or like a promotion or something yeah i i I find that it's like it's just the 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 number of times you ask a question like sometimes i'll i'll push on it like 
once or twice or maybe even three times if I feel like it's really important. But there's a point where like it's just pointless to ask the question anymore. And like if you're getting enough pushback, there's probably some reason. Like this is when mm-hmm. you can start to find these hidden things that maybe weren't explained to you up front. Um, and sometimes it might be that mm-hmm. maybe it's hugely technical and it's for an industry that you don't understand and you've tried your mm, best. Yeah. But like this is from like uh, one person doing a highly uh, technical thing, dealing with another person doing a highly technical thing that you're just not going to understand. That happens sometimes. Maybe it has some sentimental value. Uh, maybe it has some other thing you're just not going to understand. And you push and push and push. You get pushback. And you realize like, okay, there is, there is something deeper here. And I have to acknowledge that. Um, the one, the one thing that I do appreciate about, like, at this point, I do very little print work or work that gets produced in the real world. But I do appreciate when there's a cost tied to it. And you have to say, like, hey, we're making a book. Do you want to add this? It costs this amount of money to do these extra pages. And somebody says, okay, it's worth paying that amount of money to do the extra pages. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we should just start charging for the extra pixels on the screen the further you go down the page. Be like, actually... The more copy you put here, uh, these these extra pixels are going to cost a lot more money because you got to power There's screens two cents everywhere. Per pixel. And if they're willing to pay those two cents per pixel, well, then it's really important to them. It means something. There's a reason there. If I felt like I had a design philosophy that I could really believe in, I would be super into the idea of like charging for everything that was against that philosophy, <laughs> yes, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, um, this kind of goes back to something that I've really come to believe pretty firmly, which is that. Like I mentioned earlier, I think the hard part of design in almost any industry that I've seen, observed, at least, whether you're talking about websites or print publications or logos and branding or maybe even lettering, uh, the real challenge is figuring out what it is you actually should be doing, which means you are going to be excavating like these layers of purpose and meaning in the communications from your client, and you're trying to actually like get at the core thing that you're supposed to be doing. And like you said earlier, Victoria... Ideally, the client comes to you with this on a platter. Like, here's exactly what we want. We've got it all laid out. Here's our thinking behind it. Here's our purpose. Here's what we need to do. And the reality is that that doesn't ever happen. I've never seen it happen in a way that actually was successful. And I, I think it's Suck important. Andy's clients. Well, I, I think it's important not to blame clients for that. I don't think it's a fair expectation to put on somebody to like ask them to understand themselves like from a remove. Whether you're talking about an individual or you're talking about a company. Uh, like they're inherently inside of the thing. Uh, and so I think it's an unfair expectation to be like, okay, please tell us exactly what you want. And then if we deliver exactly what you said and it's not right, we're going to get mad at you and post on clients from hell about how you asked for this thing and we gave it to you and it's not what you wanted. But no, actually your job is to really figure out what it is you actually have to do. And that to me seems so much harder than all of the kind of formal stuff, which isn't to say that like we do a perfect job at the formal stuff. It's just to say that it's so much less important that if we actually got to like what we're supposed to be making and we made it 80% as good as it could be, that's a million times more successful than something that was not what it was supposed to be, but perfectly executed technically. So that's where I kind of pour my energy into is actually trying to figure out what it is we're supposed to be doing and what we're trying to actually make, which is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so what constitutes good critique specifically in like the practical world. I, 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 I've taught before. Uh, I've taught some graphic design courses and I, I spend a lot of time talking to my students about what I define as good critique in the classroom setting. I'm wondering what you all think constitutes good criticism in a practical setting. And Victoria, I'll, I'm curious to start with you, like either from your clients or from the people that you're working with. And this is not necessarily technical stuff because you said earlier that like if something's technically wrong, I just got to fix it. That's 
less criticism and more just teaching. Uh, what else constitutes like the kind of criticism you want to be receiving from your clients or partners or superiors or peers or whoever? If you could like write a book that you all you knew all your clients were going to read before they worked with you, what mm-hmm. would you, what would you say about like ways which you should communicate with Victoria? That doesn't really seem realistic, does it? Isn't it more realistic to figure out like how I'm supposed to be speaking to them and what questions I'm supposed to be asking to like pull and pry all of this out of them? Uh, if I were to write something for clients, I will say I have written that thing for clients in hopes that they might tell. read it. It doesn't always work, <laughs> but there there are times no. where like the process is. What not, did you include? Just really simple steps, like hey, what is it like to work with a designer or what is it like to work with a team of designers and developers? And just like a really simple like, hey, here's what we need from you. For example, give us your goals. You don't have to give Mm -hmm. us exactly what you want the final thing to be, but like give us what you're trying to accomplish. And then like after that, mm -hmm. give us the content. Like tell us what the thing, what's the thing going to be? Like you know your product well enough that you can probably write the copy that we have to use. Give us that. And then I'll I'll give you the rest of it. Like, We'll design it. We'll show you some stuff. This is not the final thing. Feel free to tear it all apart and change everything. Then we're going to go through some approvals. And then after that, we're going to go to developing. And like at this point, maybe don't change everything anymore. That was what before was for. If we get to this point and we haven't, we haven't done that part yet, we're not done with that part yet. Once we go through developing, let's go to testing and so on and so forth. But like some sort of outline so that everybody knows how we want to work which can be helpful. It's not always going to work. Not everybody's going to read your thing or pay attention to you, but you would hope with the people who really are trying, um, it does work and it's a helpful thing to do because not some people come to you and think like, well, I've never, I'm hiring you. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. You tell me what I'm supposed to do. This is your job. Right. And I, I mean, it is very, very helpful, obviously, to like give them the skeleton of like, okay, here's how this process is going to work. Here are how many back and forths we have and what deadlines or what arbitrary deadlines, if you don't have any that I'm going to set for you. Yeah. Um, I'm just not sure how, like, what what are the things that you tell them to say back to your work? So I thought that that's what Andy was asking. Yeah. And I, uh, a different way to say what Matt exactly did, because I agree with, with what Matt just said. I think that's exactly how we approach it, too. And the way I usually word it, Matt, is I say, like... We're looking for you to tell us what the problem is, not to tell us what the solution should be. Mm-hmm. So whenever mm-hmm. we show you Makes something, sense. don't tell us what you wish it was. Tell us what's wrong with this one. And that will be much more informative for us in terms of understanding what the actual problem is. Because people oftentimes will like make that leap and they'll say, oh, well, this needs to be blue. And it's like, yeah. no, no, no. Please don't tell us to make it blue. Please tell us what is wrong with the red or the yeah, purple. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that will be really helpful for us to actually understand why things are are problems and maybe give us an opportunity to solve it in a way you didn't foresee yeah and i want to be clear uh, like that's a pretty dream scenario for me that doesn't always happen sometimes people come and say hey i want this i want exactly this and we're going to do that and that's just what happens and you can't can't always be in control of it but i do try to outline exactly the way i want it to go and then i work from there but i i don't i don't know i feel like sometimes i hear someone i would hear someone else say that and be like is that how your world really works i'm saying no it doesn't always work that way but I am going to try my best to get it there. Right. And I think what Andy said is valuable because like, you you know, you learn what looks wrong much, much, much earlier than you learn how to make it right. And obviously a lot of the times the client can detect when something is wrong, but then won't give the correct solution. So, yeah, because that's, that's the hard part. (laughs) (laughs) Why are we paying you? Right. Yeah. And, and so the other thing that I always find valuable, um, doing like practical criticism stuff and this is more from peers because 
this is kind of like a weird game to play with clients. I think it would be confusing for them. But people like in the office, people that are working on the project, my favorite thing to do when presenting something they haven't seen yet for criticism is just to not say anything. I don't get to speak. Uh, and just ask them to describe what they see. Like no pressure on making some evaluation or making some brilliant observation. I just need you to describe out loud the obvious things that we are all seeing and say them with words. And the reason that's so valuable is because you say, say the obvious things and the thing that some person says is always different than what you thought they were going to say because the things that are obvious are just mm-hmm. so different. So if someone says, oh, I see this and I see that this... Uh, this screen has got lots of red on it. You're like, oh, I guess it did, did have having lots of red on it. I didn't mean for that to happen. But now that you say that dumb basic observation, I actually do see, yeah. Uh, so that, that's the thing I find very useful for peers. Uh, I wouldn't ask a client to do that because I think it would be weird. But I, I do I ask actually, people. Yeah, I, I see it almost as two things. Like the two kinds of criticism that I want that are valuable to me are like the totally out of context criticism, the person who doesn't know. And usually in my case, it's like a person on my team and maybe it's not even a designer. Maybe it's a developer on my team that has no idea what the project is. They're just not working on it at all. And I put it in front of them to say, like, what is this? Just to get an idea of, like, is anything... like, what do you mean? It's design. <laughs> Did you hit your head? Is everything okay? <laughs> I'm like, well, it looks like a website, but I get, I don't know. What is it? You tell me. But just to get some sort of feedback, any sort of feedback from somebody who's unfamiliar with it to see if I'm completely off base or some of these things are working. And then the other one I want is the person with full context to tell me about the things that um, are incorrect because they understand it. And it might be some, it might be simple stuff like you describe that step like an idiot. That is not how the application works. Um, or it's just, a, you know, criticism with a little bit more focus and understanding. And it wouldn't, uh, you know, it's probably not going to be really, really basic stuff or like lack the t- total concept of what the app is or what the advertisement is or whatever. I would I totally agree with you. I think the hardest criticism for me to handle is like when it's really abstract. Like I don't like sometimes I'll hear stuff like, "Oh, can you like can you make can you push this design further?" and I don't know if I'm just like a simpleton, but I'm like I don't <laughs> understand what that like in what direction do you want me to how do you want can me you to literally- push this? That can you just shove your laptop forward slightly? I can't. Yeah, just like like this. this. Do you mean like this, like tangible, like like physically? You want me to push this a little bit? Do you want me to close this window? Like, what does this mean? I don't understand. Could you you make it pop? Maybe just add a literal popping sound. Is that what you mean? Do you want me to add a wave file behind this button so when you click on it, it actually pops? Like, can you tell me? I don't really understand. Something we didn't really touch on, but I think that gets to very succinctly is that oftentimes criticism too gets kind of really tied up in like weird social stuff and becomes like a performance. Uh, Like the person telling you to really push this or really make this pop is somebody that in my experience is almost always someone in a meeting that's trying to look like they know what they're talking about and they're contributing meaningfully. And that's a weird toxic situation where you have like, let's say four people from your client's company of different uh, you know, tears in the uh, sort of corporate strata. And you have the one person that's like, ah, yes, I'm here to be useful. So let me demonstrate how smart I am about this. And then their pressure to like sound smart or to say something that makes them feel like they're contributing just completely throws any actual valuable feedback off the rails because all they're saying is, please make it pop and please push this further. Well, you know, it's which- funny. When we were describing earlier the meeting where all the clients sit quietly and then they leave and you get an email later, like I th- feel like we were describing that as a bad scenario. But in my head, I was like, oh, how nice. They're going to go talk about it. They're going to decide on ideas and they're going to come back later as opposed to everybody in the room being like, oh, the pressure's on. I really got to have an opinion now. Okay, yeah, that's I true. don't mm. like red. There it is. That's my opinion. <laughs> I found an opinion. I'm working. 
I'm kind of curious, like for you guys, like, do you have kind of um, uh, a structured way of like organizing client feedback? Like, is there um, like someone that's like specifically responsible and then some, someone's more like need to know, like need to know basis as far as like from the uh, client it's me. side? I'm need, I'm need to know. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, this is probably more just my personality, but like I make sure I'm the point person for everything and I get all the emails. And then I try mm-hmm. to structure on the other side. If I can, I try to structure in a way that's like, okay, who's the one person I'm going to talk to about this? Like I will CC people and that's fine. Or I'll, you know, I'll have a conference call or whatever, but like, who's the person I'm going to talk to at the end of the day when I have a question. And ultimately like, that probably means that person's going to send me some consolidated feedback back and just give it some sort of structure because uh, it, I mean, I'm not telling you anything new, but it's incredibly difficult to handle when you have more than one person giving you feedback because they don't always jive. Yeah. That becomes so scary too. Cause you're just like, Oh my God, who is like, who is who's boss. Right. And you're like, yeah. okay, so who, like, where does the book stop? Like whose uh, feedback should I take more seriously? <laughs> That's one of the most important questions that I always ask at every client meeting is who actually, the way I usually word it is, who gets to say no if mm, that's a good everyone one. around this table agrees to something? Does somebody else get to say no and shut this down? Because if so, I want to talk to them. I want to work my way up the ladder <laughs> until I'm presenting the thing to the person that actually gets to say no if they don't like it. Who that's another thing the that they don't tell you up front, right? No. Yeah, basically. No. Sometimes I've been, in, I've been in one project where there were like, it felt like 18 different people and I'm like, who, where, where? Who, where, what? Like, (laughs) who's giving me feedback? Who should I listen to? And it gets so crazy. But then it is really hard to be like, so who's writing the check here? (laughs) (laughs) And to answer your question about how to organize client feedback, um, we we strive at, at my company to try and keep design and development as close as possible. Like, there's not this process where the whole thing gets designed and then we throw it over a wall to some engineers and tell them to build it and come back when it's done. It's a lot of communication, lots of people that are talking back and forth. But the one place where I do kind of put up that wall a little bit is when it comes to client feedback, because I've found that uh, oftentimes we need to basically like follow a trail like we've talked about. And like the whole point of the design process is communication to better understand someone's needs. And so if we're talking about these things and the client mentions an idea or we show something that might be technically very difficult to do or we, uh, you know, someone has an idea where they maybe want to try this, if someone in the room that isn't, doesn't, isn't design-minded as much or is technically minded will jump to the explanation for why that's too hard and time-consuming and expensive to do and we shouldn't do that. And I found that doing that just stops what could be a very valuable vein of understanding from going any further. And instead, we just go, okay, so imagine we did have that. What would happen then? And then you get to kind of have that conversation. So when it comes to like collecting client feedback and and like criticism that's largely the role of like that's actually the unique role of design in the company like who gets to decide what's on the page well we work together for that because there's technical considerations there there's design considerations there uh but who actually is there to kind of like handle and wrangle the sort of mass of feedback coming back from a client that that is what i actually see design as uniquely as opposed to some other practice Mm -hmm. yeah i mean like i think you said it earlier but like uh you know, we're drawing a picture of the thing to make later. It's it's way cheaper to draw a picture of a thing and change it than it is to make a thing and change it. So mm-hmm. it's kind mm-hmm. of it like it's both practically our job and like I like to think a skill set we have is to go through that feedback process uh, maybe more times than you would ever want to with a thing you, you know, the final thing you actually made. All right, let's uh, let's go to everyone's final thoughts. Uh, this has been a good conversation. We're going to wrap it up now. Um, my my sort of closing thing is just that I, I think it's interesting to remember and important to remember that 
criticism is kind of a big word that we oftentimes apply to like different buckets of things. And sometimes criticism is actually just an instruction from a superior. Sometimes criticism is actually just someone teaching you. Like teaching is a criticism is a form of teaching. In that situation, you shouldn't really defend the thing that someone teaching you is is sort of imposing. Uh, sometimes uh, criticism is actually just communication with somebody where it's not really critical. It's just you're finding out more information. Uh, and I think that in order to like have meaningful conversations about these different roles of teaching and the roles of uh, you know feedback in the design process, we should have to recognize that these are actually different things, and they're not really. There's nothing in common about them except that people are talking about work. <laughs> I don't know, Matt. What what is your what is your final thought? Yeah, I'm with you. I think the uh, the idea of separating those things out is very useful because they don't always play the same role. The thing I've been trying to do recently is trying to figure out how how to apply criticism in a kind of flat structure. Because at least the client thing, there's there's an end result. Like somebody can drop the hammer and say no. When when nobody can do that, uh, that's the kind of world I'm trying to navigate right now and figure out when when do I pay attention to this and when do I pay attention to this. And I don't have an answer for that, but I I appreciate kind of talking through that and trying to figure out how everybody else does it because. Uh, I'd like to be able to figure out how to get better at the thing I do, listen to things that are valuable, and maybe ignore things that are not so valuable. Victoria, do you have a uh, closing thought for us? Closing word? The, well, the topic here was criticism, but in my head, I kind of think of it, uh, I think of critique and criticism as almost the same thing, except critique just sounds so much nicer. I don't know. Was like, <laughs> just the art school drilled in. Um, I mean, critiques can be brutal, but... Doesn't sound as negative as criticism. Right. And and not that criticism has to be negative either, but I think that, uh, that's probably important. Like the mindset, like both of you said going in, that it's like, this doesn't have to be bad. This is going to make us all better. We just have to get through that and i guess i i don't know i can't wait to hear people's criticisms of our criticism of criticism yeah criticism of our criticism podcast help <laughs> we're going deep all right annie bring us home what's, what's your what are your final thoughts i mean i've this i feel like after this podcast that i'm not like a professional designer anymore i'm just kind of like i my process is just criticism because I've realized that that is so such a huge part of the process and such a huge part of what I do every day is kind of negotiating all these this different type of feedback from all different directions. So I think my personal goal is just kind of also figuring out like, you know, what is the most effective way to critique someone's work and what do I need um, and what do I need to tell people I need to get the best type of criticism from other people. Because otherwise, it's just like, I don't know, it could be a free-for-all. If we ever get sick of the term graphic designer, we can just become visual negotiators. Visual negotiators, I think that's <laughs> yeah. great. That is oddly, oddly on point. That it makes a lot of sense. Well, there you go. An hour podcast, and Annie no longer feels like a professional designer, so... I quit. I don't I'm know done. what that means. I'm a means. visual negotiator on my business is card. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I don't, I don't know where, where that puts us, but... Uh, What's going to happen next week? That's a podcast for you. Yeah, tune in next week to see what other people's careers and self-identities we alter. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this has been Working File. So thank you to both Victoria and Annie for joining us. Uh, Victoria, where would you like people to go if they want more Victoria in their lives on the internet? Um, you can find my work on victoriarushton.com um, or search for me on Twitter. It's my name and my middle name because Victoria Rushton was taken. So, yeah. Don't follow that Victoria Rushton. She's a traitor. We I don't, know. We don't support her on the show. She hasn't tweeted in many years. So if you want to just like, I no, you can't do anything about Other that. Other Victoria, if you're listening, yeah. 
give this Victoria your account. I don't know why you'd be listening, Thanks. but love you. Try and do our part. Uh, Annie, where can people find you if they're looking for for some more of that? Um, you can find my uh, existential dread at Twitter, um, and it's <laughs> Annie Yiling Wong, and it's W A N G. Um, and yeah. I do have a portfolio, but I hate sharing it because I'm like, don't judge me. Love me for me, not what I make. Then don't share it. I will. I mean, I I only get love from what I make, so. (laughs) (laughs) She's blocked all the haters. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both. This has been a pleasure. Uh, Thanks for joining us. been working final thank you for listening if you've enjoyed our first few episodes please take a second to share this with a friend or review us on itunes because it really does help get the word out about the show we have no idea how the itunes algorithm works all we know is you give us a review you give us five stars we go to the top of the list life gets better and you the listener is the only reason we make this show because we want people to enjoy it so if you want to help us help us help you spread the word (laughs) 